When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Scran. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this is the podcast Passionate About Scottish Food and Drink. Valentine's Day is almost upon us, and it's a great time to spoil yourself or a loved one with a special meal. Obviously, this year it'll be one cooked at home as restaurants remain closed. On this episode of Scran, I chat to a well-known couple in the Scottish food and drink scene, Tom and Michaela Kitchen, about their businesses, how they met, what they've been cooking in lockdown and working together as a married couple. Tom Kitchen was Scotland's youngest Michelin star chef proprietor, having achieved a star in 2007, aged only 29. Tom Kitchen and his wife Michaela, who had met while they were both working in the kitchen of legendary Swiss chef Anton Mossiman, combined his excellence in cooking and her high-caliber background in hospitality to open their Leith-based restaurant, The Kitchen, in 2006. They share how this is their first Valentine's Day they'll be spending together, as this year the restaurant is temporarily closed due to the ongoing lockdown. I'm now joined on Zoom with Tom and Michaela Kitchen to talk about working together in the food and drink industry as a married couple. So hi to both of you. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, we're good, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to that stage, hasn't it, where we're all like, yeah, I think I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> so you guys have been in lockdown together and you work together. So how's all that going? Well, well, <laughs> she's, she's still speaking to me, so it must be going all right. You know, we're still friends. Uh, but obviously, it's been very challenging, um, very difficult time, um, you know, for the industry personally. It's been a it's been a hell of a twelve months, shall we say? And of course, you know, with four kids, it's 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 no easier at home either, you know. So, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a real roller coaster of emotions, but uh, we're still here. We're still we're still we're friends. Still <laughs> we're still, you know, we're rearing to go. Yeah. We want to get back at it as soon as we possibly can, and uh, we're just thinking of everyone. You know, it's you know so difficult for our industry, and it's been a, it's been incredibly sad um, twelve months. Yeah. And if you just sort of take us right back to the start, where and when did you meet? Where did we meet? We met, we actually met in the kitchen, would you believe it? I'm from Sweden and I came over to the UK to study hotel and restaurant management um, down in Surrey in England. I took up a job part-time working with a chef in London called Anton Mossiman. And um, Tom was working with Pierre Kaufman at the time uh, at uh, La Tonte Claire, the three-star Michelin mm. restaurant. and and I think by the end of the month, I think Tom was running out of money and, and I didn't have any money. And I was working with the chef and Tom sort of picked up extra jobs 
on his last sort of week to to get taken by, wasn't it really? Yeah, no, it was. Yeah. And uh, we met in the kitchen, uh, actually there, and uh, mm. yeah, we we. we became it wasn't. Good it wasn't like that. She was way out my league. She oh, was on. way out my league. Young, young, uh, spotty Scott down in London, and there's this, like this beautiful <laughs> homage to Swedish females, oh, you know, on. across the kitchen. She was way out my league. It took me years to get anywhere. <laughs> It started off from there, really. Which is probably, obviously, a good basis for working together if you get on really well and are really good friends. Like, I, I can't imagine working with my partner, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree with that. If you look at so many husband and wife teams that have gone into business in the restaurant world, it's really interesting because it is, you know, as a chef, if you're on your own or you're front of house, you don't have that incredible trust and that um, that feeling of unity. And of course, Michaela has so many skills that I don't have and vice versa. So when you start to bring the two worlds together and create a restaurant, it's really important that you have different people who have different skills to help you succeed. Because the last thing I want to do as a chef is be answering the phone and trying to make reservations and confirmation letters and all that kind of stuff. I need to be in the kitchen and vice versa. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that um, you've done, Michaela, is uh, restaurant interiors. So what, what is it that makes a good um, interior in a restaurant? Oh, I mean, I've been, first of all, I've been really very lucky because um, I don't come from an interior background as such. I've always loved it and I've, it's always been a really big passion of mine. It's really the hospitality was always my thing. And uh, gradually I sort of got opportunities to do more and more and more. And it became a natural thing, really, that I was taking that on. And, you know, we love eating out. Uh, we love seeing new places. We love seeing what other people do. And we get really inspired by that uh, on a normal basis and traveling and all that sort of stuff. And I think, um, you know, we, we've had that vision all along when we've done a new restaurant. We've always felt that how would we like to, how would we like to sit? What we would like to see when, we, when we're sitting down? You know, like when we did, you know, the kitchen early on, like the theater of cooking, it was very important that we felt that it was an experience and it was very much like, you know, you, you part with a lot of money to go to a very nice restaurant and it has to be a really, really good all in all experience. And it's a bit like going to the theater, you know, you're watching the chefs do their thing and, and you're watching what's going on in the room. And, and I'm very much in my design, you know, in my interior about mixing different textures. I think that's really, really important, you know, um, to, to have different textures, whether it's mixing fabrics, but also just mixing, whether it's stone or glass or wood or, you know, all of that, that brings a harmony and, and a welcoming space. It's really important to me. And also working with the light and, and sort of bringing out the naturalness. I think we're quite, uh, we're, we're all about, you know, staying true She's to She's done nature. a good mix of Scandi <laughs> Scottish. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a blend, isn't it? Yeah. Which is great, yeah, great. It's really um, Scandi Scottish, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> and very fashionable. <laughs> Speaking of interiors, and I say this having been there myself, because I used to live there, you worked out in Dubai um, at the Burj Al Arab. Yeah. <laughs> the interiors there, when you walk in, go up the escalator, <laughs> is a bit kind of Versace on... Uh... <laughs> yeah, very different. Yeah. And, and so very different from anything that I personally would, you know, like and love. But 
being out there, I mean, first time I walked into the hotel, it was just such a wow sort of feeling and everything is so opulent and so goldy. And like you say, so, you know, such vibrant colours and you just don't know where to look because everything is just sort of, you know, shimmering and, and sparkling. And I, I have to say, though, it was so much more about that hotel that was really, uh, it, it, it really made such an impact on me. The, the level of detailing and everything that we did. I mean, I was really lucky to work in a time when the hotel was doing so well. We had such an incredible amount of famous people and and it was really at the height in, in, in that era for sort of what was going on in Dubai. It was exciting and, and coming on. And it was just, I was really impressed by everyone's devotion more than anything to, to the detailing and what we did to, to give to the guests. It was a wonderful place to work at, and I took so much from that, uh, even if it was different from what we do now to an extent, but still caring mm. about the guests very much at the focus, for sure. For both of you, was it always the plan to come back to Edinburgh, or was that kind of just something that happened organically? <laughs> Not really. I mean, it, it mm. just happened, I think. We, we were in London for many years together, as you know, and we just felt, I mean, when we when we got engaged, I was still out in Dubai and Tom was in the south of France and had just finished with Ducasse, hadn't you? And it was very difficult uh, to be on in different parts of the world. And we were quite fed up with that and said, you know, we need to, if we're going to carry on, we need to be in the same place. And we couldn't, the truth is, we couldn't afford London. We yeah. looked at that and, and we just said, should we go to Sweden or should we go to Edinburgh? It made sense because of, you know, our, our roots and uh we were we, we totally made the right decision I, I love sweden so much but it was obviously we i had think i think it was a, a great i think it was a real blessing and um, that we chose edinburgh yeah in in a sense that it allowed us to start so small and so humbly because we really did start really really small i mean we just got a little overdraft from the bank we had mum and dad savings our savings granddad savings and that was literally a I remember we started the business on about 70 grand overdraft. That was it. And what that allowed us to do was just kind of go under the radar, start really small and grow into the shoes of restaurateurs. Now, if you open a business in London, you need a lot of financial backing. And with that comes a lot of pressure and, you know, and more scrutiny, if you see what I'm trying to say. So we were allowed to grow naturally and organically and grow the business and, and, grow ourselves into the role because you know we were only young and so. and also having your dad here was a really great help and he's still really really instrumental in the business but he he just knew everyone and he, he introduced us to so many people because yeah. we didn't really know anyone I mean you had been away for 13 years at the time I think and and you know I'd never lived in Edinburgh we didn't know anyone except for some you need a plumber you need, you need a, you need a tiler you yeah. need this you need that you know these are all the contacts that you need don't you so it started, yeah, really, really small. Speaking of um, parents there, what was the influence of your parents in your career? Are they fiddy people or was it, have you complete, both completely gone off on like a different route from them? Personally, um, it was very much, you know, it was just a very normal foodie upbringing. My mum was a good home cook, but she won't mind me saying nothing spectacular, you know. My grandmother was a good cook. I always remember her talking about the food in the war and, like trotters and these kind of things and as you'll know that's become a, that's become a big part of you know what I love cooking but 
for me, I really fell in love with hospitality when I took my first job washing the dishes in a local pub when I was 13. And that's when I started to fall in love with the, um, the energy of uh, hospitality. Just went on from there, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my family was very, also very normal. And we did a lot of things that, you know, Scandinavian families do, like you go out and forage a lot. I mean, we always, since I, I can remember, we went out picking berries, picking mushrooms and, and harvesting like fruits and I mean, all sorts of things. And uh, it's always been part of us growing up. And my mom was very particular about cooking home cooked meals every night. And I guess, you know, that's what we do as well. And, and mm. you know, my, my brother is a very good cook, uh, chef, I should say. No, he's very good. <laughs> he's got two-star Michelin in New York. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, he's more than a good chef. He's, he's really uh, very talented. And I think he's also been very influenced on, you know, just working with nature and growing up amongst nature and, and making the most of the seasons. Mm. You know, that was something that you know, for us, it was a really natural thing to do that, to work around the seasons. It's just always been the case. And our, our philosophy from nature to plate is just, it's, it's literally just a lifestyle, to be honest. It's just always been there. I love, I love the Scandinavian approach to food. It's really, it's really everything I love. You know, it's, it is really that at one with nature foraging um you know sourcing pickling yeah. how you know like the old techniques of you know in scandinavia how they get through the winter when there's so much snow and you know all the food that they have to preserve and pickle ferment whatever it's, so it's many really of this stuff still sits there yeah you know, it's it, really it still brilliant. stays on and it, it's a way of life yeah yeah it's funny because that type of way of creating well making food and creating a menu and stuff is really old but actually it seems like it's just in the last few years become quite fashionable people want to eat seasonally and they're more interested in provenance and you know foraging and kind of pickling things so it's funny that it's all kind of there must have been a time when people weren't that interested in that kind of thing yeah yeah but there's too much of it as well you know like every, <laughs> every tom dick and harry thinks that if you ferment something it's like uh you know they're going to be the next noma I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, like sometimes I go to these Scandinavian restaurants, you come away, you think you're a rabbit. You know, you've, you've eaten so much bloody fermented and this and that, but there's a balance, if you know what I mean. But I actually think even, you know, looking at what the kids do at school now, you know, they're actually talking about provenance and talking about yeah. where food comes from. And, and we've been asked to chat to the school a bit and you know I think it's really really important we certainly see a trend that people want to know a little bit more where their food comes from you know and they they want to know what they put in their mouths and it's they, they they're more interested now I think in general about food food miles and and you know organic living maybe and and sort of yeah it, it's changed a lot over the past 10 years for sure yeah which was leading me on to my next question, which is uh, you won a, a Michelin star. You were the youngest Michelin starred chef proprietor. So they say, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did that feel at the time? And 14 years on, having continually maintained that star, what do you think's changed really about the industry? Oh, we sound so old. <laughs> I know. We're like the, um... Yeah, I mean, of course it was... Um... It was a big moment to to be awarded the Michelin star so quickly after opening. I think it was just six months, and and to have retained it for fourteen years is 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 a great achievement. But if you look at the restaurant, you know, fourteen years ago to the restaurant today, there's there's no comparison of you know how much of it it's evolved and grown. And 
it's, it's a completely different setup. You know, we were so small and humble and just very, very simple food. But that's what Michelin's all about. You know, it's about just recognizing good food. And, you know, today, you know, the restaurant is um, is an iconic restaurant in the, in the country and, and in the UK. And, you know, we're very honored that we have so many people wanting to visit us, you know, but we live and breathe what we do. We live and breathe it day in, day out. That's what we do. But we've got an incredible team with us now. We've got incredible people. People are growing. People are really, people have gone on to do great things. People are coming through, wonderful new talent. But the industry has changed massively, as you say. I mean, um, even myself as a chef, you know, I've changed I would probably for the better, you know, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, the the industry, um, you know, at the beginning it was it was like the wild west in the in the kitchen, you know, but uh, it still is, but in a different kind of way, if you know what I mean. Do you just feel like you within yourself haven't got a bit older, you, like like you see Michael a bit calmer, or are you just kind of on it now, or is it? Yeah, no, absolutely. You sure? Yeah, you you grow into it, don't you? No, but it's not, you grow into the role when you're young. You're very young. You, you run the restaurant the way that your mentors taught you and the way it was, you know. And my training was very intense. It was very hard. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be allowed what I went through in today's modern world. But, yeah, of course, you grow into the role. You, you develop. You become at ease with what you're cooking and, and you know, the, what your philosophy is and what you want to achieve. But uh, it's been an incredible journey for both Michaela and I. You know, we've, we've grown with it. But so many people have grown with us and they now live and breathe the philosophy that we that we have. Yeah. I know, we've just seen Glasgow get its first star for the first time in a long time um, with Lorna. Do you have any proteges coming up through the ranks that you think, well, they, they're going to be like, you know, the next kind of big thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, first of all, congratulations to Lorna in Glasgow. Yeah, congratulations, I mean, great news. At, at last, we can, finally, we can put this Glasgow <laughs> Michelin star thing to bed, you know, because uh, it was going on and on and on. <laughs> But you know it's really great what she's done, and um, it's it's just the the more good restaurants we have in Scotland, the better because especially after this pandemic, and you know we've lost the tourists now for two years. You know we need to we need these restaurants, we need these great operators to to showcase Scotland at its best. And when these tourists come back, or even people from the UK, mm -hmm. the staycation thing, we need to celebrate you know all everything that's great about scottish hospitality so we're really delighted for lorna and yeah i mean there's so many great sh um chefs that have come through my kitchen i've got some wonderful chefs in my kitchen my head chef lachlan is an, an unbelievable talent my pastry chef chris and then i have young people underneath and it's nice to get to that stage in life where you look at chefs and you can see you're nurturing them you're pushing them and you're trying to take them to to where they want to go you mentioned um, cooking at home. Sorry if you get asked this all the time, but do you have a favourite meal to cook at home or have you found anything new that you enjoy during lockdown? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, Tom thinks about food all the time and what, <laughs> what meals we're going to prepare. <laughs> I think I'm stuck with the homeschooling and Tom is uh, doing the domestic uh, stuff, which is quite a good deal, I think. I'm just looking over to the kitchen there because I've got my soup on the go. <laughs> We've been... Uh, spoiled to have you home haven't we really to mm. to eat we've been eating really well i think the boys were complaining the other day saying do we have to eat something really posh can we not just eat something normal <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, but um, that, yeah, yeah. But yeah no I, I don't know if this I, th- is I think what I've really enjoyed we have one of these um green egg barbecues I don't know if you've come across them yeah the, uh, the big green egg and I've really I've always enjoyed it but I've never really had the time to to play with it and I, I really enjoyed doing the long slow cooking of like meat joints like brisket and cooking that on the barbecue outside is it's been a really pleasurable um, experience I really enjoyed it the, the chicken the other night was yeah, but a the, huge success. Yeah, the beer can chicken. The kids love that. They love it. And they think they're drinking beer as well, which makes <laughs> them really happy. So you mentioned, you know, the restrictions and everything and the year that we've been through, and it's obviously been terrible for the industry. And you've you've spoken out on that a few times. But a year on now, almost a year on from the first lockdown, what are your thoughts on, on the survival of the industry and, and what, what do you kind of hope for the future? Well, you're trying to open a can of worms here. <laughs> I, can see, I can see where you're going with this. Yeah, I've spoken out quite a lot. Speaking out for, for our industry because, you know, the, the, the restaurants and the the, host, the, the hotels, whatever, we're, we're, what we did, how we dealt with the, the pandemic, I, I don't feel that we were treated with the right respect and, the, you, know, the, you know, the way we dealt with the implications of the restrictions. We, we did everything that we could possibly could. We dealt with so many things. But, of course, we totally understand that we have to get this pandemic under control. But we have always, as an industry, reacted in such an incredible way. And we've, we've, we've operated at six o'clock closures with no alcohol, eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, this, that. I mean, it's just been horrendous for the industry. And of all the industries, we've had it so bad, so yeah. bad. But the message I was, I wasn't here to whinge about, you know, like, why us, why us? I was just trying to get across the messages that, if the restaurants are not operating, if we're not able to operate, we're not even talking about making a profit. We're just talking about being able to operate because we were op- operating and making a loss because of the restrictions. That means that we can't pay our staff. And then that means that we can't pay our suppliers. And if we can't pay our suppliers, that means that the suppliers can't buy from the fishermen and they can't buy from the farmers and they can't buy. And that means the farmers aren't able to put their stock to be killed or you know animals to be killed so no no it's just like such a knock-on effect and then it's a knock-on effect to the taxi drivers then it's a knock-on effect to the florists then it's a knock-on effect to people who clean the restaurants we just needed a bit more support and we've tried so hard to create something really special in scotland with food and hospitality an industry that so many people are involved in so many people work in and it's, everyone talks about Scotland, this incredible country, you know, the best hospitality, the best larder in the world. There will be nothing left if we don't support hospitality. When people go out to eat or they buy a takeaway or whatever, this is what we need to get this out because it's supporting the whole chain of people that are to do with hospitality. And the suppliers, the suppliers, I keep going on about the suppliers, we're going to lose these incredible artisan suppliers, and that is heartbreaking. One of the per- people I follow on Twitter is um, Guy Grieve, you know, with the scallops. Mm-hmm. He has pivoted to doing home delivery, but you can just tell sometimes he's just, it's not enough. And it's just, it's like, I think as cons- like consumers, we want to do and help and, you know, buy, like you say, buy takeaways, buy these meal boxes, do what we can, but we can't physically go out to restaurants yet. And it's, you know, everyone wants to do it to help, but also to see their friends. And it's just a horrible situation for everyone. 
Yeah, it's 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 absolutely yeah. tragic. It's tragic. Um, and hospitality is so important for so many, you know, reasons just in life, in society, and just normal life. And mm. there's so many yeah. young people working in hospitality that yeah, this is so mentally, perfect. mentally difficult. And so many people be made redundant as well because if businesses don't make redundancies, the businesses will not survive. And it's just a whole. It's just it's just tragic what's happening, just happening. And of course, you know, when you speak out then you get criticised, you know? So I'm really, really passionate about it. But of course, I understand about the pandemic. But there, there's no, you know, with some people, there's no understanding. You know, they, they think that us restaurateurs are made of money. The margins are so, so small in restaurants, you know, to make money. You know, whether it's a fine dining restaurant charging a lot of money for the food, but of course, they're buying the food. At, you know, the, the staffing of the restaurant is so expensive. So to the small cafe, the overheads are very, very small. And sorry, the, the margins are very, very small. So it's just trying to get people to understand business and the knock-on effect. And if we're not careful, we'll, have, we'll walk down the high streets and there will be no independent restaurants. And that is very sad. really, really depressing. Well, on a lighter note, <laughs> see, I told you not to go there. No, no, no it's it's interesting to hear your 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 side because I think, especially on social media, people think if you're sort of speaking up about one thing, it's like you can't then care about the other thing. So, like you, you know, obviously uh -huh. you care about the pandemic and things, but you're you're speaking out about your industry. It doesn't mean to say that you know you're not not understanding or caring about the pandemic. It just it seems, yeah, it can be a difficult place sometimes. I think. Yeah, I just felt as well that the government could do more to support us, you know, and I'm not going to get political. It's not about the first minister. It's not about Boris Johnson. It's all of them. They're not supporting hospitality enough. We don't even have a minister of hospitality to go to to the House of Commons to put our case forward. It's madness. It's an industry that supports, that employs millions and millions of people. But we're being treated like secondhand, uh, you know, secondhand people, you Citizen. know, citizens. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So Valentine's Day, <laughs> mm -hmm. do you celebrate it, and are you having a special meal at home, or or not really? <laughs> I don't think I, I've never had Valentine's Day off, so I'm under pressure this year. Aren't I? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, we will be celebrating it absolutely. You know, yeah, we <laughs> no. will do. Something. Well, of course, we've never celebrated it before, but um, it's always we always work. Certainly yeah, you, yeah. It's a it's a funny one in the restaurant. It always cracks me up Valentine's Day because. You've got these um, tables of two people who don't go out all year, but they just come out for Valentine's Day. And, That's and, a few. Yeah. And they sit there. <laughs> and they've got nothing to talk about. It's fun. In fact, yeah, one of your one of your famous guests on Valentine's Day was Kevin Bridges, wasn't it? A few years ago. Kevin Bridges, oh, that's right? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. He did the poem, didn't he? He's very yeah. funny. Yeah. I like him. Yeah. One of the parts of the podcast we have a quick fire round um of questions to do with food and drink but before we go into that i'm just going to ask you something just off the top of your head like first first answers that come to your head for both of you if you could host a dinner party and you could invite three dream guests each who would they be and why and they can be dead or alive on you go Mika. oh no i can't do that i'm really on the spot okay i'm going to invite um i'm going to invite barack obama i'm going to invite kenny dalglish uh, sorry, Kenny Douglas, and uh, I'm going to invite Ali McCoist as well because he's funny. See, you're used to these questions. <laughs> I'm not. I've never been asked that question before. I never thought about it. Who would I say? Um, 
God, you said Barack Obama. I was going to say Michelle Obama because I think she's a, she's great. I would have to say um, Kate Middleton, Duchess of Cambridge. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the, I'm on the spot. I, I can't actually think right now who I would invite. One of your old GMs from the, the <laughs> I Savoy. Know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no. I, it's uh, gosh, it's many people I admire for sure. Um, I uh, mm. I need to pass on that one right this second. <laughs> I need to get more used to these sort of things. Yeah. Tom is so good at uh, chatting to to you guys, and uh, yeah, I usually stay in the background. So yeah. Well, you've got you've got almost a full dinner party there, the Obamas and nearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got quick fair questions here, which are just like daft sort of first thing that comes to your heads. Um, Tom, I'll probably start with you. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of. I think of um, saucisson. Comfort food for me is. Comfort food for me is roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. My favourite childhood dessert is? Poached rhubarb. My food heaven is? My food heaven is uh, first of the season young grouse, bread sauce, game chips. And my food hell? My food hell is um, something from a really bad chippy. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair enough. (laughs) Mikhail, do you want to do it as well or are you...? No, okay. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll pass. It's fine. You, you, you stick to Tom's one. It's fine. That's fine. Well, um, well, thank you very much for your time this morning. It was great to catch up and and hear about your working life together. And hopefully, we can, you'll we'll open up soon, and we'll all be able to go out and about and eat amazing food again. Yeah, let's hope. Thank so. you. Yeah, we really hope so. Also, John O'Connor, brand ambassador at Isle of Butte Gin, shares an easy to make cocktail that you can try at home. Hi there, how are you doing? My name's John O'Connor and I'm the brand ambassador at the Isle of Butte Gin Distillery. I'm going to showcase a little cocktail for you today called the Beautiful or the Beautiful. What you're going to need for you guys is you're going to need some of their Heather Isle of Butte Gin. We're also going to need some peach snaps. We're also going to need some tea. Now we've chosen Earl Grey tea. Now how you make this is you just basically steep a tea bag exactly as you would make your tea without adding your milk. Now beware of this. The longer you steep it, the more bitter it will get. So just you steep it for as long as you find is necessary for your taste. We're also going to need some lavender syrup. You can store by this. However, what I've decided to do was to produce my own. Um, here in Isle of Butte, uh, we have a fantastic gardens at Mount Stewart Estate um, and we collected some different species of lavender. Um, the one that I've chosen to use is English lavender. Um, to create this, it was hot water, sugar to a one to one ratio. And then I added um, some spoonfuls of lavender and stirred. And again, the longer you steep it, the more bitterness comes from it. So just ensure that you ca- catch that just at the right moment, you'll be fine. We're also going to need some, um, some lemons or lemon juice. I've pre-squeezed the lemons, um, so it's up to yourself. You can buy store-bought lemon juice. Um, I would try and stay away from the likes of Jif lemon juice. It doesn't quite provide exactly the correct flavour. So what we really need to get started is we're going to need a glass. Uh, we make this using a coupette or you could use our martini glass. This one here, uh, as I said, is a coupette and I've put some ice and water in it to chill it down. So we should stick that to the side. I'm going to take our glass and we're going to take our measure. So what we're going to put in this um, today is we're going to put 40 mils of the Isle of Butte Heller Gin. So I'll just do that for you right now. And so that's just half a shot or 12.5 mils. So we're going to put in 20 mils 
of Earl Grey tea. We're going to get a lavender syrup. We're going to put in 20 mils. Now we're going to get our lemon juice. And we're going to put that in the jigger. Just want just over a half shot, so just shy of 20 mils. So let me just fill this up. So that's nearly, sorry, that's nearly all the ice um, in the cocktail shaker. We're going to pour that in. Give it a nice feed done. If you guys want to use the likes of a Tupperware tub, that's completely up to yourselves. As long as you make sure it's closed um, and you give it a good shake, it's going to work just the same. So what we've done is we've chilled it, made it really cool, but we haven't over diluted it. Take that off. Now what I want to do is I want to dump this. So you see that's nice and frosted there. Now I'm going to use some bar tools. It's really up to yourself again how you do this. Um, no doubt you've probably strained some pasta through something like a colander. Um, that's okay, it's a bit large, things might go all over the place. Um, you might just want to crack that Tupperware tub and just let a little bit of liquid out and not all the ice. I'm also going to double strain this so I don't have any extra dilution in the glass. Thanks again for listening to Scran and if you haven't already subscribed, please do and leave us a rate and review on Apple. And if you have any suggestions for who you'd like to see me interview, then leave a comment. I really love reading them. Scran is a logical production and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Scran is presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morgan McIntyre. Music